Any questions? I looked uh, up your question um, last night, Jamananda, about one should not criticize or praise a Vaishnava, but the text is from the Bhagavatam, cited in Chaitanya Charitamrita, and it doesn't say that. It says one should not praise anyone or criticize anyone. The idea being that praise and criticism are equal. Hmm. Two sides of the same coin, materially speaking. And then the following verse in the Bhagavatam says, but hmm, if anything, you should praise someone rather than, than criticize them. It doesn't pertain to uh, Vaishnavas as it's presented there in Chaitanya Charitamrita, whom we should as we were saying last night, it was our whole life is about glorifying the Vaishnavas and not not vilifying them. So praise and blame. Someone praises me or blames me. Um, those are two sides of the same coin. We should generally think with regard to ourselves, because we wouldn't think of ourselves as much of a Vaishnav usually. <laughs> but um, idea is that the world is moving around being praised and avoiding not being play, praised, just like we pursue happiness and try to avoid distress. And this is the, the ocean of material existence that we're tossing and turning in, hmm. trying to avoid one thing and, and uh, acquire the other, and they're intertwined. One leads to the other, it's rather circular, usually. So, rather than riding on that, or the whole idea of yoga is, is, is to not be attached to the results, whether people praise me or blame me, I do my duty. Hmm. And, um, and the reward, the results that I'm looking for are not coming from outside, but from inside, from the balance that comes from that. Hmm so that I can uh, not no longer ride ups and downs of, of life, so to speak, mm-hmm. and be, uh, live with equilibrium, balance, and know that's the nature of the world. Mm-hmm. Just two faces of material existence. It's not that one face is is the solution, and the other is, is to avoid two faces. You get the good, you go all the way, you know, the, the, uh, the playing the idea out fully, you go all the way to heaven and live there for ten quadrillion years, and then come back down. <laughs> so, uh, you don't want to be on that Ferris wheel, so to speak. And then, of course, there's another ride, and that's the ride of bhakti, which is similar in appearance and has similar qualities. There's hankering, there's lamentation, and so forth. That, that generally, when we speak about spiritual life and yogic sensibilities, we overcome the hankering for acquiring something, the lamentation that results from losing it or it turning out to be less than what I thought it would be, and and so on and so forth. Um, but bhakti, then, especially the Braja bhakti, is full of hankering and lamentation centered on the object of Krishna. So as I often say, we, we can't rest in the world until we can find love and then it has an orbit of its own, so to speak. That's why it's also said that the Vaishnavas Character is often difficult for people to understand. Even for Ghanis, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was misunderstood by Prakashananda Saraswati and Banaras. He thought he's a sannyasi, but he hangs out with other crazy people singing and dancing in the streets. Sentimentalist, emotionalist. You should be studying Vedanta and get grounded. And, and this was his, was his thinking, so he couldn't understand the nature of bhakti, the nature of of Leela and so on, which is a perfect complement to material existence. 
as I say. It is the same pursuit. Pursuit, if you will, of love, but it's properly centered, therefore it's fruitful. So bhakti is very wholesome in this way. It doesn't eliminate anything. It's very much like life is. We just have the wrong center. It's like I say, the building's fine, and you just have to change the foundation. It's a small thing. <laughs> Jack up the building and take the old foundation out, put the new one in. But they do that rather than build a new building. Often. <laughs> so, and as I've said also, the the way in which we sense that we are and how our life works is is very accurate. We're just doing it and being what we are and experiencing our potential as a jiva in relation to the material environment under the under the influence of that jiva maya. So we come under the influence of Krishna's yoga maya, the sarup shakti, then nothing changes but everything changes. And this, I say, is like very wholesome because look at the difference. For example, in Advaita Vedanta or in Yoga Siddhanta, what is the self? It's not the things that we experience it to be. It's not a doer. It's not an experiencer. It's not an individual. A delimited means individual, like, like one atom is different from the other, even though they're made up of the same components. They're delimited, so there's, they're different. They're individual units of the same substance. But according to the Veda Vedanta, you're not delimited. That's an illusion. You don't, aren't a qualitative experiencer, experiencer of qualities, um, a qualitative experiencer. You are not a, a doer, a unit of will, which is how we naturally uh, experience ourselves. It's very experience-based um, explanation of reality. This idea of the tatasta jiva, it's very, very interesting concept. And you really only find it played out in, fully in Gaudiya Vedanta, which is so much um, centered around the idea of Bhagavan's shakti, which we are one part of one shakti, then there's the Maya shakti and the Sarup shakti. There are other shaktis, but these are the three principal that are in play in terms of how our life plays out. And you just remove one environment, bring in the other environment, sadhasadguna, according to association, so we will, our life will be based on our nature. As I say often, we have a capacity to to um, be in relation to nurture. So there's malnutrition and there's real nutrition. Anvaya Shakti is kind of malnutrition. And the Sarup Shakti, Bhakti, that's uh, super whole foods diet there. <laughs> uh, it comes from the land of no exploitation, right? It's or- organic and wholesome. <laughs> but it's not just propaganda. <laughs> It's for real. Yeah. There's no there's no taking going on there. It's um what do they call it? Free trade or something like that? Fair trade. Fair trade. It's the trade of the Sarup Shakti to to share bhakti. So Again, as we experience ourselves to be, so we are. Mm-hmm.
what we are, being what we are, which is also a potential in relation to the environment we've uh, identified with and surrounded ourselves by. And now we have the good fortune to have the influence of bhakti, it's another environment. And we had to come under that environment, come out from underneath this particular materialistic perspective and ways of, of knowing. Scientific experiment is the way of knowing, but there's, there's absolutely no way of knowing <laughs> that that will bring conclusive knowledge. It's a way of knowing certain things, but it certainly cannot be built, and any intelligent person will admit, as a way of knowing everything, or the secret of life, the mystery of life. Hmm. It has no... And it's no, nothing special. Everybody does it. Even the primitive people. Do something, get some results, do it again, get consistent data, and then know, oh, if you do this, you do, that happens. And then they proceed. There's nothing about that that in, it has any potential reveal the mysteries of life, but if you think that it, it, it does, and then you end up with this dead idea of life that many people have, materialistic people have come up with. <clears throat> there's, 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 there's nothing, nothing in, um, for example, the scientific community that would lead us to believe that we should be privileged to know the whole picture, any more than an ant should be privileged to know the whole picture of what life's about, you know, when you put your finger down and the ant has to go around it, what the heck is that? You understand? No, I don't know what you're talking about, the ant. Well, if you have an ant, <laughs> an insect on the table and you put your finger down and it block its path, oh, okay. you know, is that a god or what, you know, what had just happened? Right, so things are happening to us. We can talk about them in certain ways and think about them and think we've really understood them and so forth. But from a certain perspective, you've described something that's happened to you and how it affects you, but that, that, that you get the whole picture. Hmm. No. We're living in Flatland. What's his name? Alan Alberts. Flatland, two-dimensional world, and then somebody, one of the figures, enters into the three-dimensional world. It's thought to be crazy and so forth. You saw it, right? You watched it one day. So, now, that said, you cannot deny that the theory in Vedanta and Godivanta in particular, the theory holds weight in terms of its capacity, stated capacity, to reveal the whole picture. Hmm. You, you cannot even theoretically, reasonably conclude hmm, that by, for example, the scientific, scientific method, you're going to know the whole truth of life. That's would be very foolish. Educated people, really truly educated people, would never reach that conclusion. It doesn't purport to do that. It, 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 again, um, everybody does it on some, some level. But here, then, that given, okay, then is there a way of knowing everything? Knowing everything that needs to be known, getting the whole picture, coming into the whole picture? Hmm. Yes, not in, it's not inherently the right or the privilege of the human species. There's nothing that, that scientific fact or observable fact that mandates that. We see that we, we, we appear to know more than other species about how, how the world works. Hmm. And we appear to be the, the, you know, the, the most complex form. Of, of life. But there's no reason to believe that we're the be-all and the end-all, or even if we are the most complex form of life, 
that that necessarily means that we can understand everything. But theoretically, the that this is the idea of revelation. It's 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 a very profound idea. That again, to use Sri Dharmarsh's mathematical analogy, uh, that how can the finite know the infinite? If the infinite, out of its infiniteness, wants to reveal itself to the finite, then the finite can do something that, in and of itself, it could not. Hmm. That is the idea. Hmm. And here we live in the plane of mortality. Hmm. It's not a geographical location. It's immortality, and with immortality comes fear. Excuse me, mortality. With mortality comes fear and inauspiciousness. And in immortality there is fearlessness and auspiciousness. That is the tripad vibhuti. It has it is immortal, fearless, and auspicious. And ekpad vibhuti means the one part frac part is three quarters existence and the one-quarter existence. As I said, this isn't a geographical or mathematical, uh, uh, how you say, uh, space, but a space in another sense, a space of, of consciousness. Here is just mortality. Hmm. Living's dying. Hmm. And, that, and that mortality is, is, a, is a perception only. So you see, you have to go, well, the idea is go into the subjective world. A whole different perspective. And it's such a vast realm. We're just on the tip of the iceberg of what is the subjective world of consciousness proper. And we tend to look at it from the objective perspective and require validation from there and so on. God, please, we let go. We enter the air. Oh, so many things. It would be such a bigger picture. Hmm. A happy one. Anyway, point is, theoretically, as I often say, if you want to know, have perfect knowledge, you need a perfect method. And the materialistic method for knowing everything is inherently flawed. Hmm. The spiritual method may be a theory, but it's a theory that at least we've got a theory how you can solve the problem and know everything, know, in other words, how to be perfectly happy. And we have examples of persons who have attained such. So, some thoughts. What else? Yes. Um, my- kind of towards the beginning, speaking about um, praising, um, I'm thinking more of uh, genuine glorification. Um, before one can find the right words, or has really the qualification to do so, could you say that one would glorify the devotee Vaishnava through his action? Um, through so one's actions? Yeah. Could that be like a, a more proper glorification of a Vaishnava? For one really uh, can find the right words or the right space to glorify the words. Well, I think um, we could invoke the adage that action speaks louder than words, and what can I say to praise Prabhupada? I have to serve him. Hmm. And that obviously speaks loudly that you hold um, that Vaishnava in, in regard and high esteem and, and really practically so. Hmm? And it's possible and there are disciples who are good at the words but <laughs> say the right things but it doesn't translate into doing anything practical. Hmm? So that's a way to, to look at that and um, that said, it's it's not so hard to come up with the right words. You have the right feelings. 
I guess it is a little hard, maybe sometimes, but uh, to say, um, I love you. <laughs> Something like that. It's just the spirit of it. There's <laughs> uh, an old song, I, I wanted to say I love you, but the words got in the way. Maybe you've heard it. It's quite old. But the words got in the way. Something like that. So, you know, it almost transcends words and therefore, in a sense, the actions speak it and say it more than the words can. But that said, I mean, there are ways to to, to, to praise the Vaishnava in, in words and and uh, we see that uh, in, the, in, the, in the texts, how others have done, mm-hmm. how the Goswamis have praised Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and so on and so forth. And so as we read, we, 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 we learn a little bit about that. Does that help? Yeah. <laughs> but the words got in the way. It's beyond words, beyond thought, beyond word. And I think feeling like that is 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 just to be well connected with it. To think that I can do justice in words is maybe to some extent be deceived by one's own ego and intellect. And when we can do so, we feel we've got some power, some blessing. That they have been empowered to do so. Hmm? Sometimes, therefore, there are prayers like, give me the power to adequately express my, my gratitude and to um, say to others or publicly express to you what, what is your um, greatness and my feelings, the gratitude of having you in my life, something like that. And I mean, I have some ability to explain things, but I, I know it, it comes from those who I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, it's a blessing. What else? Yes. Um, I said that uh, all around, um, I think my dharma is a manifestation of all around. Um, however, if the same could be applied to me, then I'm I'm not sure where that comes from. I mean, Generally, we say that the, the paraphernalia, the Brahman thread of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, for example, well, Krishna or in, in, in Mathura, or Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, the umbrella, the shoes, all these things, that a, a particular manifestation of Balaram, Sesh, is there t- taking those forms. And this underscores the serving ego and disposition of Balaram. So there's Sevya Bhagavan and Sevaka Bhagavan. So Sevya means who's to be served, and Sevaka Bhagavan, that's Krishna, and Sevya Bhagavan is, is Balaram. It says the, the ego of, of, of a devotee of serving, he's the root of that. That's rooted in him. Um, so... Um, well, but oh, largely, overall, whatever is true of Balaram is true of Nityananda Prabhu in this regard. Hmm. Now, as far as the, the Murdunga goes, uh, more typically, um, the Murdunga is said to be Krishna's flute and the Kartals. Those are his instruments. That is his instrument in, in Goloka, the flute. And takes the shape of instruments here, cartels and 
Madanga by which Mahaprabhu would be assisted in his uh, dispensation of the of, the, of Krishna Nam. Hmm. So we tend to think of him like that. I know that Palavra, Prabhupada named this the Balaram Madanga. You know, Ishan, he made this. God brother of mine, he's been here before. Quite a quite a character. And a sincere person. Prabhupada wanted to make some Murdanga that wouldn't break or, or he I I guess he was complaining or devotees were complaining they were breaking the clay drums with importing, exporting and so forth. Anyway. I don't know, I think the name came from Prabhupada the Balaram Murdanga. But Again, generally it's thought to be a manifestation of Krishna's flute. Did you read it somewhere? Um, no, I think I just heard it. I know in the prayer mm. of the Madanga it's mentioned towards the end. Namo. Namo Bande. Namaste. Something like that. Yeah, I'd have to look at that mantra. Not, not too familiar with it, but it's important. Yeah, so, but anyway, the, the answer to your question overall is whatever is true for Nityananda Prabhu in terms of being an expansion to serve Krishna, Nityananda Prabhu is for serving uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. This is how Krishna Skaviraj explains the tattva of Nityananda, Nityananda Ram. He has what, five verses in his auspicious invocation to Chaitanya Charitamrita describing the ontological position of Nityananda Prabhu. Hmm. So, yeah, he's everything that Balaram is, and a little bit more, inasmuch as the whole of the Gaur-lila is Krishna-lila, a little bit more. A little bit more is the giving out of the sweetness, wide circulation, of the sweetness, the dispensation, without seeking qualification, generosity to the extreme. Krishna is also Adarya, but Mahaprabhu is Adarya plus, and Nityananda Prabhu is Adarya plus, plus. No. He's the extension of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's generosity. By which he could ex- he could extend the generosity even to places where it wouldn't be have been appropriate for a sannyasi to go. Just being there, people would suspect him. But Nityanandapu went to the to the drunkards and associated with very uh, common and misbehaved people, even to give Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's kripa. Mm. Make him known as Patit Pavan, the deliverer of the most fallen. This is the, this is the preoccupation of Nityananda Prabhu. Mm-hmm. If I can deliver the most fallen people, then Chaitanya Mahaprabhu will be known as the deliverer of the most fallen. That's his ego. The classic example there in the Jagai and Madai, they live their deliverance. And we can see the parallel of Prabhupada coming to the from the Vedic uh, point of view, or um, pious uh, Hindu culture in India in his time, coming to America in the sixties, a decadent period, <laughs> and um, delivering them with Krishna Nam, a simple presentation, chant and be happy. This is the preaching of Nityananda Prabhu. Chant and be happy. What else? Yes? Uh, I'm wondering about one of the uh, Vaishnava Paradis of six kinds and one is to not be happy upon seeing a Vaishnava but like you can't really control that. It means to be unhappy upon seeing an exalted Vaishnava. Hmm. Oh, 
I wish he didn't come here, something like that. Hmm? To think, oh, I, I wish he didn't, if a great Vaishnava comes, and to think, oh, I wish he didn't come here. Hmm? It's something like that. Hmm? I want. I don't want to associate with him. You know, we don't need him. You know, we've got something like that. Should we give him prasad? Seat. Show respect. Yes. Someone was asking me about the fifth canto. Shukadev says that the universe is four billion miles wide or something. So they're asking me, um, kind of like, well, if he says that, and that's kind of an arbitrary number, then what about the yuga cycles or Brahman's life and? The question is kind of like, are all the numbers arbitrary, and if so, why? Um, I don't really know how to answer, except like I was thinking the numbers don't really matter so much, but I was wondering if you could articulate why Sukadev would kind of throw out... Like well, Sukadev himself explains that. Sukadev says, I will explain to you the, I guess, cosmography hmm, in accordance with how the scholars of the time, have, the Puranic scholars have thought about it. That's how he prefaces his whole explanation. So he's employing the descriptions of the time, which may have an element of relativity in them, in as much as they are efforts to explain something which, even the material world, which is infinite and infinitely... Uh, um, complex hmm? and so he he prefaces his whole explanation with that and and says what it is really in essence is is this transformation of the of the gunas hmm? and that that's what's really going on in essence but the pranic scholars have said like this and and you, and you and you see that the bhagavatam incorporates uh, a a a theist Theistic, its own theistic form of Sankhya philosophy for explaining matter and so forth, which is the standard explanation of matter that is found in Buddhism, all forms of Hinduism, and Vedanta, and so forth. Hmm. The Sankhya philosophers are really into that. Hmm. And so it's incorporated in the Sankhya philosophy unto itself. It's not particularly, it's not theistic. The Bhagavatam is a theistic form of it. So it incorporates explanations, arguably, of the natural world, hmm, of the time, hmm, and then speaks about it in such a way that we can derive inspiration for entering into the subjective world. That's what it does. Hmm. Um, and you know, you have to look also at, I think, um, as a general rule, also, in reading books like the Bhagavatam or Chaitanya Charitamrita, we touched a little bit on it the other night, that um, it's not, what's important is not as much the truth of the story, but the truth that's in the story. Do you understand? Whether the, sto- the story is just a way of talking about the truth, ultimately. Hmm. So we find Krishnadas takes the story of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and some of the details he adjusts and so forth. To what's important is, is, is the truth and the message. So what's important in the Bhagavatam is its truth, what it's about. And it may import... Um, you know, it speaks in a certain context of its time and so forth. So, how is it going to talk about? So, if we do it today, we talk about the natural world to some extent, the way people think about it today. And we may also think that they don't—they admit themselves they don't understand how what is matter. Hmm? The understanding in the scientific community of the nature of matter um, is. Um, I would just say it, it's it's uh, it's more at a loss to explain matter than it than it has been 
or thought it was in centuries past. Hmm. You know, it was thought that the world was like a like a like a watch, like a clock, like a machine. Hmm. That's called classical Newtonian physics, and it's found out to, to not be. I mean, now they think maybe it's information. It's more like thought than it is like stuff, physical stuff, so to speak. It's it's kind of, I guess we would call it realistic idealism or something like. There is the real stuff, and then it's activated by by ideas or by consciousness, and comes out in shapes and so forth. Anyway, it's complex and and uh, and and all, but um, that's how I would approach the uh, the subject. And uh, you quote right from the Bhagavatam itself, right at the beginning of the description of the of the uh, the cosmos, if you will, in the, in the fifth canto. He makes that statement hmm. according to what the Puranic scholars say. And all of them incorporate this Sankhya perspective of where with psychic matter and physical matter and the physical matter coming out of the psychic matters, like we feel that our thoughts cause action. And, uh, and so similar on a microcos- macrocosmic sense then from the, from the psychic dimension of matter, the Mahatattva becomes in the, in the microcosmic sense of our, ourselves as individually the, the chitta. The Mahatattva becomes the chitta. Chitta-bhas. And it's chitta-bhas. Chitta means God. So it's an abhas. It's a shadow of real consciousness. Having the capacity, the subtle matter, to reflect actual consciousness and then the kind of um, Emanation, emanating from psychic matter comes the physical, unfolds the the, the physical matter and, and so forth. Hmm. And so, uh, yeah, that's uh, some 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 relativity there. Hmm. And I mean, even. What modern science today, or the explanation is full of approximations, right? There's a whole use of numbers, too, from a literary point of view. I'm not fully acquainted with it, but they employ certain numbers to mean you know, big, small, medium, something like that. Um, it's a bit of a literary device. But what was the, so what was the, does that answer your question? Yeah. Kind yeah. of, huh? Yeah. yeah. I, was, I was kind of trying to repeat all those things you just said, but it wasn't coming together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, really, you see, what the Bhagavatam says is the nature of the material world. It's that it, that it, one thing is it's the Gunamaya, and then the other thing is the Jiva Maya. And the more important thing is the jiva-maya. Guna-maya is like what it's constituted of, but it, it more important is how it has the capacity to to delude the jiva. Hmm? And when the jiva is deluded by maya, then it tries to measure the guna-maya. Hmm? In other words, it tries to measure it, means it tries to capture it in the fist of its understanding and stand above it. It is above it, so it feels like that, but but that's maya. That's illusion. You cannot grab the whole thing in your fist. It's quite a proud idea. And you see, they used to think there was, I don't know, one one galaxy or something like that. I don't know what it was, but now they think there's 500,000 galaxies and all types of very big numbers and uh, approximations of 
and theories about matter. It's a very elusive, elusive subject matter. So, you know, you want to compare the Bhagavatam's description of matter to the modern world, where there are, you know, there are some things you can get a grip on, you can observe and say it's like this. And from your perspective, yeah, it works like that pragmatically. Hmm. But then, you know, you extrapolate and get to the bigger picture, the bigger you go and the more comprehensive type of understanding of the entirety of it all that you try to arrive at, the more vague it, it becomes, the more questionable it comes. Both going out and going within. Hmm. They went inside to the subatomic world and <laughs> closed the door there. That doesn't make any sense. Hmm. Oh. Hmm. But the door can't be closed. And so... And and it's just like, just to give you an example, people, it's thought in Europe, used to think that the planets orbited around the Earth, a geocentric perspective, right? Then it was changed, and now it's thought that the planets, planets orbit around the sun. What do you call that? Heliocentric. Heliocentric perspective. Whoa. Big difference, huh? Big mistake. Yeah, true, but everybody was eating, sleeping, things were going on. It was all working, right? Now maybe we got some more gizmos and gadgets as a result of that, and so on and so forth, but life's basically pretty, pretty similar. It's not so life. Life shattering, hmm. earth shattering. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot has come from that, I suppose, but I don't know to what extent it's changed the, the quality of life. You may have life may be prolonged. We may have some um, developments in the medical field. I suppose it's all connected with those types of. Breakthroughs, if you if you will, but how happy people are, how close they are to knowing themselves—that's another thing. So there's always been, and um, some measure of question about the nature of of matter and the cosmos and. Seems like always will be. The Bhagavatam says, "Don't try to master it all." Yes, to some extent, for practical living, and that should be practical in the full sense of the term of what human life is gives us the potential for that no other species of life gives us the full potential for, which is to pursue directly a transcendent um, ideal. To embrace a transcend a transrational methodology, the, the the trees and and the animals and so forth and the birds and the bees can't do that directly. That's what distinguishes us from them. We can do that. If we don't do that, and we just do what they do, then the Bhagavatam calls us dwipadapashu, two-legged animals only. And so we. Sh- yeah, I mean, we should know that if you touch fire, you get burnt. Okay, <laughs> you figured some things out, and and to a point, and um, and such a way that material life becomes your your material situation becomes facilitated in the context of pursuing spiritual life. Hmm. This then puts a kind of a a rain on scientific and technological development. Otherwise, it's, it's unhinged. And we'll become the gods, and we'll, we'll create perfect human beings, and we'll decide, oh, that one in the womb that's going to have a fault. Get rid of that one. Let's try another one. This is a problem. Then you're you're back to 
Yeah, something like the horrors of the caste system. <laughs> Misunderstood. Do you understand? Hmm. So, yeah. Hmm. So we should try to know enough about the natural world to live a reasonably comfortable, fruitful, um, bountiful, even material life, good food, good good relationships. I mean, that's what it all comes down to for people, right? Good food, good relationships, and some aesthetic sensibility, some uh, shelter. Is there anything more? Stretch those things out, or there's much, much more. Is the idea from the spiritual perspective the opportunity to systematically enter into and explore the subjective world and the possibilities that lie there? So we begin with the idea that the material world is is, is unlimited and un- unknowable. It's part of Brahman. Brahman is unknown and unknowable. Those that say they know Brahman don't know Brahman. Those that say that they don't know Brahman, they know Brahman. That's so says 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 the revelation. So says so says the Upanishads. Hmm. So it's not about mastery, but but, but servitude. Not about becoming the masters, but serving. And if you love someone, then they tell you all their secrets. Secret of nature is it has a soul, it's you. And it can come out from underneath the limitations of the natural world. They're perceived limitations. Like, I have to die. Which is a good thing to think about. I read an article, I think they're going to publish it on the harmonist, of, um, about the people of Burma and how their, their lives are happier. One of the happiest peoples in the world. And the reason that they attribute this to is because they, have been, they are taught trained to think about death a few times a day. And it makes them happier. Hmm. You can try it. Hmm. I'm going to die. Hmm. That's inevitable. Just contemplate that. It'll make you happier. Hmm. Because it causes a a letting go, hmm. an inevitability of letting go, and not having to—that I can't control the situation. Trying to control the whole situation—that's going to be problematic for you. Hmm. It's going to make life difficult to some extent. We have to do that, obviously. We've got to manage well the situation, even an ashram. But, but some. Since I'm not the controller. Ah. That's good to know. So they've tested it. I think they've taught like this to contemplate the inevitability of, of death and it makes them happier. Instead of unconsciously fighting against it your whole life, Accepting what is and the acceptance of that actually gives insight into the 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 eternality of the self 
Because you said, I can see all these things will end. I can see it. Those things will end. They can't see it. Things can't see it. I can see it. I'm different than the things. The things will end. That's death. They will come and go. That's death. Because I'm identified with them, I'll think I will go. But no, I'm thinking they will go. They won't be there. The only reason you think, and I won't be there, because I've identified myself with the things, but I'm different than the things that won't be there, that won't endure. I'm thinking about them. Hmm. I'm able to contemplate that. I'm able to perceive that. I'm different, very different than them. Hmm. So, these kind of thoughts will come, and it's happy. <laughs> it's happy. And it's not a rich nation. Everybody doesn't have Wi-Fi there. Oh my God! As you see, yeah. people can't live without certain things. That even in my life, we didn't have televisions. You were just coming out, black and white televisions. Remember the first color televisions? People thought, I don't know, maybe the black and white's better. <laughs> yeah. Now it's high definition. I mean, this is what life's about. Is it, is it really worth, you know, the time and effort? It's a good question. You follow? Yeah. So there's an example is poor nation, third world country. People are said to be happier. These are Americans writing about it. They're happier than Americans. And why? Because they think about death. And that's the way we think about it is to try to put it off. Right? There's a group of rich people investing in frozen, you know, bodies and bringing them back to life and so forth. An unwillingness to accept the inevitability of death, which brings insight into our mortality. We want immortality. Hmm. That's understandable, because we are immortal. Hmm. It's only the things that are mortal that don't think about it. We only appear to be immortal as much as we think ourselves, of ourselves in terms of the things. Right? So that's why death is a problem, because the things that I am identified with, my whole sense of identity is derived from, are not going to endure. So it appears like I'm not going to endure. Hmm. And we lose sight of the huge difference between the thinker and that which is thought about. They cannot think how different they are. Yeah, this is one of the differences. One is mortal, the other is immortal. We can observe the change, the constant fluctuation of material nature, of the coming and going of things, the seed turning into the tree, into the fruit, into the seed, and ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and all these things. We can observe the change because we're separate from it. And this kind of thinking doesn't cost anything. It doesn't cost anything to be happy. You have to think differently, that's all. And you think differently, you act differently. And you have a different perspective on the world. We think the world is Jagadavyatumurtina, it's the body of God. We're living inside the dream of God, we're members of part of his dream. Granted, it's an abstract idea, but only, only in terms of your present perspective. Is it abstract? Huh? The world's the body of God, and 
And then there are kind of basic ways of talking about it that are suggestive. Like the virata rupa, universal form, and the sun is one eye and the moon is the other. These are kind of suggestive ways to help us move into a, a, this sensibility. But Mother Yasoda, she experienced it. Balaram reported that Krishna had eaten dirt, turned him in. So, Mother said, well, I, has said, you've eaten dirt. No, I haven't eaten dirt. Hmm. They're just saying that because I defeat them all the time. Hmm. And so now this is their way of trying to get even with me. And they've, been, they've swayed Balaram's opinion. Now he's reported this. It's not true. Look inside my mouth and see. And then she saw. She saw the whole universe. She saw. Then she saw in the universe. She saw Vrindavan. Then she saw Krishna. She saw herself looking into Krishna's mouth. And inside that mouth, there was the universe. So that's what she saw. And said, "See, how can I eat dirt? Dirt's inside of me." Hmm. <laughs> Everything's already inside of me. How can I be accused of eating dirt? This is his way of answering. <laughs> and she thought, is this what's happening here? Some, is it some magic? Some gods are doing something? And he revealed her, no, this is what I'm like. I'm like this. Everything's inside of me. She said, okay. <laughs> But don't eat dirt. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's the story. And there's the truth in the story. It says it in the Gita, everything rests in me. I'm inside everything, outside everything. At the same time. So you have a whole like sacred universe. Everything becomes venerable, worshipable, not something to defile and exploit for the small world of your mind and its purposes what can be conceived of there, in which there are friends and enemies. It's mean. I like him, I don't like her. And then we take from the world, from that perspective, and the world resists to some extent. There's a struggle. This is a very different perspective. And you can see practically how, if it's understood and applied, it makes very nice people. Content, wise, happy. economic problem, you know, the, the whole economy in the capitalistic world is driven by greed. <laughs> Not the most you know, laudable characteristic. And the other ends one like socialistic perspective and it's all for the center or something. Solidarity. I don't think that was that was against communism <laughs> in Poland, but you know the communistic idea of all for the center. But then the right, you got the wrong center. It's a mundane center, so it's problematic. Hmm. So we have greed, greed for Krishna, <laughs> greed to satisfy Krishna. Agreed to be with Krishna, to have Krishna. I want to have Krishna. Okay? And there's unlimited to be had. Hmm? Unlimited love. You can have it. There's no limit. And it will be distributed everywhere. 
the more you partake of that love, the more it's distributed. So there are beautiful ideas, right? Solve the economic crisis. Living with less for more. Living for the more. What's wrong with that? Hmm? And it takes less to do it. But who, who will want to do? Who can, who can understand? That's, that's material life, so who can understand? But it, it's very simplistic but in a way, but it, it does solve all the problems. You can solve all the problems for yourself. And if others will follow you as well. The whole world is oriented towards these ideas and different economic perspective. What else? Question? No. Did you have a question? What's the time now? 7.42. Better stop. There. Tomorrow we can ask it. Shri Shri Gornit Nanda Ki Jai. Kuri Vaishnav Guru Parampara Ki Jai. Or Bhakti Bindu Ki Jai.